this is about resting. And uh, it seems like it's coming at a good time. Um, I guess everybody really needs to rest. I don't know if they need to hear about resting or if it'll just make them feel worse. Um, Because this is the kind of semester. There are times when you just have to do what you have to do. But Eugene Peterson, who is a great pastor who's went on to be with Jesus now, um, he's the guy that translated the message. But one of the things he said in one of his books that I read years ago that has really stuck with me, he said, so much of the bondage and the slavery that we experience in our lives is because we refuse to embrace our finiteness. In other words, one of the things that keeps us always stressed out and always in bondage is feeling like if only we could just try a little harder, if only we could work a little bit longer. And and the question that rarely gets asked is, why are you doing what you're doing? In in many ways, when I first started working in RUF, we had a guy named Bebo Elkin, who was one of the the couple founders of RUF, and, and he was what we call an area coordinator back in those days. And he said, basically, my job is to come to campus, meet with the campus minister and say, why are you doing what you're doing? Like, we really want people to be theologically reflective about all of life. We want that for you. And even thinking about, is the gospel connecting with my heart and my life, has to begin with, why are you doing what you're doing? Christianity is very concerned with motivation, why you're doing what you're doing. You can do a lot of Christian things for the wrong reasons and become more and more bitter towards God because you're doing it to try to earn his smile rather than doing it out of the security that has been secured by what Jesus did. In other words, you could say you can live the Christian life sure of God's love or unsure of God's love. And and, and I think that that is so important. A friend of mine, uh, Scott Rowley, a pastor I used to serve on a church staff with, um, had a great story about this. He had a guy who came to his office after he'd heard him uh, preaching one Sunday, and the guy said, you know, I've I've been listening to what you guys have been saying about Jesus, and I'm I'm really intrigued and really interested, but I, you know, if I become a Christian, like, I don't want to have to tell people about Jesus. And, and, And my friend Scott said, well, you don't have to tell people about Jesus for God to love you. The guy was like, huh. Anyway, he leaves, and about a week later, this mutual friend of theirs said, Scott, what did you tell that guy? And Scott's like, what do you mean? Well, it's like ever since he met with you, he's just talking about Jesus all the time. (laughs) So Scott calls the guy back into his office like, what gives? Like when when you left, you know, you said you didn't want to have to tell people about Jesus. He said, well, Scott, when you told me I didn't have to tell people about Jesus for God to love me, like I had to tell everybody. Right? Some of this stuff is like the upside down kingdom that really is hard to embrace because so much of what we demand and expect of ourselves is that you get what you deserve because of what you've earned. And the gospel, the good news comes in and says, I have something to tell you. It actually doesn't work that way at all. Now, Hebrews chapter 4 is is about that. It's about resting. And and it really, I think, is getting at this issue. The real difficulty in resting the way God designed us to rest is that we find it so difficult to believe that he's got this. 
You know, it's one thing to work a job, especially at this age. Some of the jobs you have to work in the summer or maybe even while you're going through school are like things that you're way overqualified for. And they're really boring and tedious, right? But it's hell to go into a job every day that you can't possibly do. And that's what it's like to try to live your life in a way where you've got this. Because you weren't made to bear that weight. There is a throne in heaven and it's occupied, but not by you. That's good news. But it's hard to embrace it. So much of the reason that we find it difficult to rest is because we feel like we better cover our bets. I know I need to trust in Jesus, but I better make sure I'm as good as I possibly can be to make sure that he really does like me. And the gospel isn't about that. So we're going to see when we get into this. You know, any guys ever ever seen that movie Chariots of Fire? I don't know if people still watch that anymore. It, you know, I mean, some of it probably isn't exactly true to life from what I've understood. But, but the way they put it in the movie is really, is, is really powerful. There are two runners, right? There's Eric Little, and Eric um, is a Scottish, and he's a runner, and he also feels a call to go to China to do missions. And he says, you know, I run because I feel God's pleasure when I run. God has made me fast, but he's also made me for China. And he, actually, the rest of the story of his life is really fascinating, but I won't get sidetracked by that right now. But then there was this other runner, and they're always competing. And, and at one point in the movie, the other runner's named is Harold Abrams, says this. He's thinking about an up-and-coming race, and he says this. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? What a way to live. Why do you do what you do? What is your corridor? What are the 10 seconds that you have to justify yourself? What's the stage upon which you have to stand to justify yourself? This is a passage about being set free from all of that. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 4. Follow me as I read. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. He's referring back to people in Moses' day. But the message they heard back in Moses' day was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, and then this is a quote from Psalm 95, so I declared on oath in my anger they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works, meaning God's works, have been finished since the creation of the world. We read that passage a second ago. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage above, again, Psalm 95, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, there must be a rest that's still to come, is the point. If God said in Genesis, after the, on the seventh day he rested, and yet later, through David in Psalm 95, he talks about entering into the rest like it's a future thing, then that shows that the, there is still a rest ahead of us, right? That's the point. 
Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, that is the ultimate rest, when they entered into the promised land, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, now let me give you the little overall way this passage hangs together. Sometimes it's really helpful to wrestle and not give up wrestling with a passage of Scripture until you kind of see how the train of thought hangs together, if that makes sense. So he's talking here about a rest that remains for the people of God and the seriousness of it, and particularly the seriousness of not entering into that rest and of hardening your heart and not listening and responding to God's invitation. And then it goes down to what seems like something that comes out of the blue in verse 12, when it says, for the word of God is alive and active. And here's the way I think about this. It's so important that we enter into the rest, and yet it's really impossible for us unless God changes our heart. So God doesn't just leave us with this bare command, you need to enter my rest. He gives us three important things to help us. He gives us the word of God that it can expose all the ways our deceitful hearts try to avoid rest. And he gives us a merciful high priest. And he gives us access to come boldly before the throne of God to find help in our time of need. So do you understand, this isn't just a passage about how you need to rest. It's like telling kids to go to, go to sleep on Christmas Eve. <laughs> like just, you know, go, go get in your bed, you know, and, and, and tr try to go to sleep, right? One day you'll understand when you have, when you have kids, you know, and I, I don't know about you, but I remember at times we would try to go to bed at eight o'clock at night when I was little so that Christmas morning would come earlier, but it never works. You can't try to go to sleep on Christmas Eve especially if you've like, been able to sneak around and discover some of the presents that you know are coming that your parents tried to hide to no avail, right? 
That's what it's like just being told you need to rest. You actually need to know that you can rest because Jesus has done what is necessary to secure the smile of God. And you don't have to keep it up and keep juggling all these balls in the air. So let's dig into this. What is the rest that still remains? Like I said, you know, the writer of Hebrews kind of gets into some, some maybe like a somewhat complex connection of this scripture with this scripture. One of the things that, that uh, I think is helpful to know is the best way to understand the Bible is to follow this principle. Scripture interprets scripture. The more clear you should use to help with the less clear. And you see the writer of Hebrews doing that, saying, okay, you know, when you look at Psalm 95, God talks about a future rest. Therefore, the promised land wasn't the be-all, end-all of rest. But a lot of people may have thought, if only we could be back in the promised land, if only we could be out of the oppression of the Romans, if only this, if only that, if only we could get back, then we would be able to rest and everything would be better. Remember, these are Jewish Christians who are facing persecution and they are tempted to turn back from Jesus and go back to merely being Jewish because then the Roman oppression will not come upon them. Judaism was a protected religion. Christianity was not in this period of time. And so they might be thinking, well, look, we had the promised land. Let's just stay there. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, actually, in your own Bible, if you read it, you will realize that the Psalms also talk about a rest that's to come. So the promised land had to be a signpost pointing to something. It wasn't the rest itself. And I think so often we look at signposts and just kind of try and camp out there sometimes. We do. I, I think, for instance, I always say this whenever I do weddings, that marriage is a signpost pointed to something. And you know what? That's good news for people who are married. It's good news for people who are not married. That marriage is not the ultimate. It's a signpost pointing us to something even greater that can be true for whether you're married or single. And, and so is the, this promised land, as glorious as it was, it's a signpost pointing to an ultimate rest, and, and as the passage shows us at the very end, an ultimate access where we can come boldly with confidence before the very presence of God. So it, it's not merely an earthly rest that's promised. It's not merely the promised land, right? It's pointing to something. And what the writer Hebrew says is ultimately what the idea, the whole idea of rest is pointing to is being able to rest in what Jesus has done. There's a place where Jesus says, this is the work that God requires that we would believe in the one he has sent. That's in John 6, right? So the idea that we would rest in him or sometimes uh, in John's gospel, it talks about abiding in him and abiding in his word. All these are the same kinds of ideas of resting in him, of trusting in him. And this is a rest 
that's really important. It's absolutely vital that we enter into it. And there is here a real warning. Like the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, this is serious. You need to not harden your hearts and turn away from this rest that has been, enter- that has been offered to you. Now, what you need to understand is Hebrews, and we'll get into this more, especially when we get into chapter 6, because there's a lot of questions. And I myself, when I was your age, was thrown into a lot of spiritual turmoil by some bad teaching on Hebrews chapter 6 about whether or not Christians can lose their salvation. So this is not saying that Christians will lose their salvation if you don't keep it up. What it's saying is to a mixed group, all of whom are saying, sure, I'm a Christian, but not all of them really were. Not all of them really had true faith. And the writer of Hebrews is saying the, 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 the threat that if you don't trust in the rest of Jesus, you will eventually come to, come to ruin. That threat is real, but so is the promise that it's still today. It says, today, if you hear his voice, and that's the call to us even today. Today, if you hear his voice, why would you resist? Why would you not enter into this rest? Why would you harden your heart? The warning is real, but so is the promise that it's not too late. As a matter of fact, you know, sometimes people are worried, well, have I committed the unpardonable sin? And I, I know this is trite, but I think it's true. If you're worried about it, it's probably not what you need to worry about. But if you're hard-hearted and remain in that place, pray that God would change your heart. Pray that God would soften your heart to respond to his word, to respond to the rest that is offered. And the rest that's offered is rest in Christ alone, resting from our works. You see that in verse 10, right? For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works. What it means to be Someone who is a Christian is somebody who has rested in Christ alone. Uh, One of the hymns that we sing sometimes puts it this way, upon a death I did not die, upon a life I did not live, another's death, another's life, I stake my whole eternity. That's what it means to be a Christian. You know, we read that verse from Isaiah chapter 30 and it's fascinating. I, I remember years ago, There was this group that was operating around Nashville. They're probably still around here. They were kind of a cultic group, and actually Belmont uh, banned them from campus. So you can I can tell you more about that later. But they had had basically kind of gotten their 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 hooks into one of our students, and um, she was meeting with them regularly. And I and I was like, well, you know, you're going to meet with this this girl you've been talking to from this church, quote unquote church. Uh, I said, could I go with? And, And the student said, sure, yeah. Why don't you come along? And so we go and we start talking, and um, this was a group that, that was very effective because they were, they were always able to make Christians feel like they weren't really doing enough for God. Like most Christians feel pretty guilty about how they've lived the Christian life. And if you start pressing on it, well, do you really love God? Have you really sacrificed for him? You can make real Christians feel pretty bad pretty quick right? And that's what they were doing. And they were saying, you know, you basically have to repent. That means you have to quit sinning. And then 
you can believe and be baptized in their church and then you might actually become a real Christian, right? And I was like, well, now that's really interesting because you just quoted Acts 2.38. That's the apostle Peter, repent and be baptized, right? Um, but don't you think when, G when Peter is saying that on the day of Pentecost to a bunch of Jewish people that the Old Testament understanding of repentance might have some thing to help us understand what Peter meant by that? And she said, sure, that seems like a reasonable thing. I said, well, look at Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15, which says, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength. Now, the way Hebrew poetry works, those things are equated. Repentance is rest. Quietness is trust. And she said, well... Being a Christian is absolutely not about resting. It's about working for him. And I was like, I guess you have a problem with Jesus' words, because as we read, come unto me, all you are heavy, weary, laden, and I will give you rest. And at that point, the student began to be like, wait, hold on. You don't think being a Christian is about resting? Whoa. This really is like the fulcrum on which true Christianity rests or falls. Is it first and foremost about rest? You can even think of the way God did this. It's been said that the Jews worked six days and then entered into rest on the seventh day. But do you know what happens with Jesus and his resurrection? He's resurrected when? On the first day. And in Christianity, the first day is rest. And then we work out of that. We don't look forward to rest. We begin with rest. And that changes everything, right? The Sabbath is God's gift to us so that we can rest from our work, but even more importantly, it's his gift to us so that we can rest in his love for us. 1 John 4, 16, a paradigm-changing verse. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. It doesn't say, and so we know and rely on the love we have for God. I think most most college students are really trying to depend on their zeal for Jesus. I know I was when I was your age. I remember when I first became a Christian, I thought, well, you know, I've got this kind of Christian meeting here on uh, Tuesday, and I need to find a Bible study around about Thursday so I can kind of keep kind of fired up for Jesus, you know, because after about two days, I kind of start to, to wither a little bit. How completely backwards that is. It's not about whumping up, you know, zeal for Jesus and trying to keep it going. It's about resting in what he's done. It's about knowing and relying on the love God has for us. And so what has God given to help us do that? Three things. His living and active word. God's word, it says here, is so powerful, it can penetrate into the murky depths of your heart. And because it is God's word, it exposes the deceitful, deceitful strategies of our hearts. You know, Jeremiah chapter 17, the prophet says in verse 9, that our hearts are deceitful above all things and beyond understanding who can know it. So I, I think so often people are always trying to look into their heart to figure out what they really feel, what they really believe. And I'm like, your heart's deceitful beyond all things. You need the word of God to actually expose what's really going on in your heart. And so let me just ask this simple question. Do you read the word of God or does the word of God read you? It's not the same thing. 
Like sometimes we read the word of God hoping to kind of get uh, a warm fuzzy or a little kind of devotional hit out of it. But there's a very different thing to reading it in a posture of saying, Lord, show me who I am. Show me what you would have me to be. Help me to see what's really going on in my heart. And then lead me to putting my trust more fully in you. And this is hard to do, guys. Now, I think one of the people who really understood this whole faith and bold trusting in the gospel was Martin Luther. Now, he wasn't perfect. He said some crazy things. Um, but he said some really helpful things. And I was always struck by this one uh, thing he wrote in a letter when he was much older. So he had been teaching and preaching the gospel for a long time. God had used him greatly. But he wrote this. He said, it is diff exceedingly difficult to get into another habit of thinking in which we clearly separate faith and works of love. And what he means is thinking that our relationship with God has been established by faith rather than by our works. He said, even though we are now in faith, in other words, even though we now know and understand that we need to be related to God through faith and not through our works, the heart is always ready to boast of itself before God and say, after all, I've preached so long and lived so well and done so much Surely God will take this into account. We even want to haggle with God to make him regard our life, but it cannot be done. With men, you may boast, I've done the best I could toward everyone, and if anything is lacking, I will still try to make recompense. But when you come before God, leave all that boasting at home and remember to appeal from justice to grace. And this is the part that blows me away. But let anybody try this and he will see and experience how exceedingly hard and bitter a thing it is for a man or a woman who all their life has been mired in their works righteousness to pull themselves out of it and with all their heart rise up through faith in the one mediator. I myself, he says, have been preaching and cultivating it through reading and writing for almost 20 years, and still I feel the old clinging dirt of wanting to deal so with God that I may contribute something, so that he will have to give me his grace in exchange for my holiness. Still, I cannot get it into my head that I should surrender myself completely to sheer grace, yet I know that this is what I should and must do. That's why the writer of Hebrews is pleading with them and not just pleading with them, but saying you need the word of God because no matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how well you think you live the Christian life, there are deep lurking places where your heart is hiding and still trusting in itself. And the word of God can expose that and we need that. But here's key. If all you get when you read the Bible or go to church or hear sermons is your sin exposed, that won't help you very much. Later, the book of Hebrews says this, we must believe that God exists and rewards those who seek him. Now, I think people misunderstand that sometimes. A reward is not a wage. 
What it's saying is, you must believe that God exists, but you also need to believe something about what he's like. That he's one who rewards those who seek him. He doesn't pay you a wage. Your faith is not the currency that earns blessings from God, either before you're a Christian or after. Faith is trusting in God and his character. You must not just have your sin exposed and see, oh my gosh, I, I've, I, I'm just an awful Christian. Yeah, you are. But that's okay, because God knew that and still died for you, right? So the only way that you really begin to appreciate the gospel is when you realize how it's all you can hope for. You have nothing to contribute except you know, sin and unbelief. That's all you contribute to the bargain. So the, the point is, you need to see that God is a safe place to actually repent. If all you see is my sin ex is exposed and I'm worse than I thought I was, but you don't see that God is a welcoming, safe place, you'll just hide again in a new and more sophisticated way. And that's why you see we need three things. We need the word of God to show us where we really need grace, but we also need to see that we have a great high priest because God doesn't just expose our sin by his word. He shows us Jesus in his word. The word reveals Jesus, the high priest, the one who made atonement, and even now sits at the right hand of the Father making interceding for us. Jesus is the merciful one who can sympathize with our weakness. You have to see God as a safe place to turn to him. And we need to see Jesus as well as a real savior. You know, Flannery O'Connor, do you know any of her writing? You know, she basically said that people in the South avoid Jesus by avoiding their sin. That they basically think that they're pretty good people because they avoid their sin. But avoiding their sin, they don't really have to be dependent upon Jesus. And I think we do that, don't we? I think some of us, we think that the, the more that we get disciplined and good and we read our Bible every day and we pray every day, the more spiritual disciplined we get, the less we'll need God. That's not the point. The point is for you to begin to understand how desperately you need daily bread, right? All right. The third thing, he gives us access to the throne of God in prayer. This, is, this in a lot of ways is what Hebrews contributes to the New Testament that isn't really developed as much in other places in the Bible. We can come boldly before God because Jesus has atoned for our sins and reconciled us to God, and we must come boldly because we have no strength in ourselves for our time of need. I think we hate to be dependent on God or anybody else, but we need to be. It's what, it's what God has invited us to. We can come boldly, and we must come boldly. What does that mean, practically? It means this, that let's say maybe, you know, you're like plunge yourself into sin that you know you shouldn't be doing, maybe looking at porn, right? How long do you think you have to go from stopping looking to being able to go to God and say, I'm sorry? I think the answer to that question has a lot to do with how well you really understand the gospel. 
Because for many of us, we feel like we have to wallow in our guilt to sort of soften up God so that he's actually going to take pity on us. And that's a lie from the pit of hell. We can come boldly in our time of need right away, anytime, because Jesus has opened the way by his blood. We can come boldly. Do you know what it means to come boldly? It doesn't mean to be the kind of people that feel like if you just pray with confidence that you're going to get what you want. No, it's saying you can come boldly knowing that God hears you because he's your father. And because Jesus has taken everything that would make God want to turn away from you. Jesus dealt with it. All right. Well, let me just say a couple things about the Sabbath itself. Because just... The fact that the Sabbath rest is ultimately pointing to Jesus and resting in him, his work, rather than our works, does not mean that the Sabbath is irrelevant. But it does change the way we think about the Sabbath. The Sabbath, I I, I love a a couple of these, like, I think, maybe thoughts that will be thought-provoking for you to kind of chew on a little bit. Think about this. The Sabbath is about interference. This again, Eugene Peterson says this, Sabbath, taking a Sabbath, resting from your works, is a deliberate act of interference, an interruption of our work each week, a decree of no work, so that we are able to notice, to attend to, to listen, to assimilate this comprehensive and majestic work of God, to orient our work in the work of God. God coming to the rescue is the heart of what the gospel is about, yet the rescue of God usually begins as something that feels like interference. And Sabbath is about interference. It's a gracious command that may strike us as feeling like it's out of touch with reality. God, you don't know how much stuff I have to do. You don't know this, you don't know that. He knows. But it's an invitation to get in touch with true reality rather than the distorted worlds of illusions created by the tyranny of the urgent. Sabbath is a countercultural stand. Um, Greg Jones you know, worked for many years with this guy, William Willimon, who was the chaplain at Duke. And I love the way he said this, Sabbath keeping is a publicly enacted sign of our trust that God keeps the world. Therefore, we do not have to. Hmm. Sabbath means ceasing, but also Sabbath means wetting our appetite for the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Sabbath is supposed to be a party. Marva Dawn, one of my favorite um, theologians, Lutheran theologian who's went on to be with Jesus now, but she has a book on worship where she calls it this, a royal waste of time. In, In many ways, worship doesn't seem very practical but it's a royal waste of time to help us remember that the world is not dependent upon us, that God is on the throne. And we have this one day a week to feast on our God in worship. She says this, Marva Dawn, instead of trying to create our own security, we're called to worship the one who is our security. The presence of God in our worship, in his word, in our customs for keeping the day transforms us for the entire week into persons whose values are not transient, but it turns us into Sabbath people who carry the kingdom of God within them wherever they go. We are formed and shaped by what happens 
when we gather and we sit in the presence of God, hear his word, worship him, it restores our sanity and we need it. We need it. But again, it's not do this so that God will like you. It's there's an invitation to be with him, to spend time with him, one day in seven to focus on the love of God that you might know it and rely on it. And why would we not take advantage of that? I don't know. I, I mean, I, I think about, I, my wife and I, we were talking today in our, with our therapist and I, I was just thinking about this very thing. I have so many opportunities to enjoy relationships that I never take advantage of. Why do I do that? Why do we do that? What is it that we think is more important? Let's pray together.